So today we are going to end our time together with communion, and I'll tell you up front, if you're a guest of ours and you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you have examined yourself as 1 Corinthians 11 uh, encourages us to do so, then we invite you to join us as we celebrate communion together as one body in Christ. Now, the passage that I've already read to you has many great points that we could make from that, but I want to focus in with you on those things that help us to think about communion and the, the impact that communion has for us. So let me start verse by saying that communion reminds us of the core truths of the gospel. Those things that are the central truths of the gospel. Uh, for instance, go back with me in verse 18 and 19. Jesus says, see, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Uh, there's some significant core truths that Christ is bringing to our attention here. And first is the fact that he is on his way to Jerusalem. At this point in the narrative of Matthew's gospel, that's a defining point. He is moving to Jerusalem to the point of the crucifixion. Why Jerusalem, though, you might ask? What's the significance of Jerusalem? Could it not have been any city uh, throughout Israel? Well, the answer is no. God has specifically determined Jerusalem as that holy city, that designated place where the Son would redeem uh, people unto the Father, and that's certainly where Jesus is going. If you remember, there's a historicity of, of Israel that, uh, Jerusalem, excuse me, that, that is found all the way through the Old Testament. It's moving us to this point. In fact, I would argue that all of history is moving to the point of the cross. And if you, if you can't reveal this, the uh, specific ways that a historical event is moving to the cross, it's the point in history that requires the cross to be. It's the point in history and sin of mankind that requires the cross to come about and Christ to to have all the sin of the world placed on himself there. The city of Jerusalem is that place. Go back with me into the Old Testament to what you remember reading about Abraham, who longed for a son, even in his old age, he longed for a son, and God promised him he would have that. And the son by his wife Sarah's name is Isaac, and of course Isaac and Abraham uh, had a tight bond because he was the son of his old age. But one day God required of Abraham to take his son Isaac and go to the place that he would reveal to him and sacrifice him there. And as they journey towards that place, they dropped some of the uh, servants off and they, just the two of them, journey towards Mount Moriah. And it would be there that God would interact with Abraham. Now, all this was a testing of the faith of Abraham. Isaac was not harmed. And if you remember, uh, when the Lord was certain that Isaac would be willing to sacrifice his son, God supplied a substitutionary sacrifice as a ram. You remember that? All of that transpired where the temple is built in Jerusalem. It's a unique and holy place. Of course, you and I know now that Jesus and the disciples are making their way like Abraham and Isaac was making their way towards Mount Moriah. Jesus is doing so. It's an early telling of the gospel account of Jesus, the Son of God, 
with God the Father moving towards Jerusalem for that point of sacrifice. The only thing is, there will not be another substitute. Jesus is the substitute. He is that one who takes our sin upon himself because he was sinless, capable of doing so, and died there on the cross. It's a unique place. Of course, the city of Jerusalem is a unique place because it's the holy place where God had determined that his Shekinah glory would dwell. Remember, he told Solomon to, that he could build the temple, and he placed it there in that holy city on that threshing floor that had been purchased sometime before, God already making all the, the way for that to happen. So Jesus and the disciples are on their way to that city where God's presence had been. Now, what he is going to accomplish there is he, he is going to take away the sins of man and, uh, men and women who would be faithful unto him, repent of their ways. He would remove their sin from them and give them the credit of his righteousness, and he would give them a new life. That's the, the glory of the gospel, but even more is going. They're going to Jerusalem, the place where the presence of God once was, so that Jesus could make it that we might be in the presence of God, not in a place. Remember Jesus told the woman, uh, the Samaritan woman, there is coming a time where it won't be a place, it will be you in your heart, it will be in you. So Jesus is making it so that the presence of God could actually dwell within us. He's going to make us holy vessels so that we don't go to where God is. God comes to where we are. It's a beautiful thing that he's doing. So he's on his way to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem with the disciples, and he's doing so with great intentionality as history is unfolding coming to this place of the glorious climax uh, with Christ on the cross, the glory of God demonstrated. All right, so that's a core principle of the gospel that Jesus is pointing to. He also recognizes that this is core, that he is rejected by all, though he was sinless. Today, when you and I received the bread that we're going to have in communion, it was baked on Friday here and it's baked without leaven. In almost every instance in the scripture, and some would argue every instance, leaven represents sin. And so for there to be unleavened bread is a representation of a life without sin. Uh, none of us are there. Uh, we all have leaven in our life. We all have sin in our life. But Jesus was the sinless one. And so even the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and all the times people were to take of, of unleavened bread, it was all a representation of Christ. So Jesus is that unleavened life, that life without sin, but yet he dies a sinner's death, and he does so in our stead. He takes our sin from us and gives us his righteousness. Now, that's an astonishment of love and mercy and grace of God, and it's evident as he's moving in such a profound way to make it that we might be right in soul and in body to be in Christ. So the bread is going to reveal that. In fact, this is one of the loaves that was cooked on Friday, and uh, you can see from the loaf, it's, it's without rise, no leaven in there. And to ensure that there's no rise in it, uh, ancient Hebrews, as well as Hebrews today, uh, they will pierce the bread when they're going to have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We do the same thing because we don't want that bread to rise. And when you cook it, you cook it in the oven, and typically it's laid on the racks, which dries it really well. 
but it scars with the striping of the racks there. So all of this is painting a picture from ancient practices that Jesus is this unleavened bread who was pierced for our transgressions, who was giving us healing by the stripes which was given to him. Uh, it's, it's a life that was broken for us, and the bread that you're going to receive today, it's already broken for you. Uh, but it, it represents all of that life of Christ. So when we're taking of communion, we're coming back to this core principle of the gospel, that Jesus alone was the sinless, unleavened bread, whose body was broken for us, pierced for our transgressions, and uh, beaten and striped that we might have healing from his great uh, pain and suffering. But Jesus is also helping us to recognize in the midst of communion that he has risen from the grave, that on the third day he rose, giving life to all who were repentant and believe in him. In the second service, we had a baptism, and that's a beautiful demonstration of the gospel as well, that one has died to the sin in their life and raised new by the Spirit of Christ so that they can walk in this new life of Christ with the righteousness of Christ. You're going to have the same thing today, not in baptism, but in the communion. It's a, it's a movement of us recognizing the victory that we have in Christ, that he is resurrected from the grave on the third day. And it's not just that he was resurrected, but that he empowers us to live that resurrected life. So the resurrection that Jesus points to in this passage today is the irrefutable truth that he is the Son of God. Right? So anybody can die. And some people could die for other people. But only the Son of God could die for others and be resurrected on the third day following. It's the irrefutable truth that he is the Son of God. It, it, it is what everything hinges on. And so he was raised to life, and he gives that to us. Uh, when, when you and I hold the bread today, we do so with great faith that Christ has been resurrected and that we too will experience that resurrection. Uh, if you've been reading in Revelation, you've just finished reading about this glorious body that we're going to be given. This body without sin that's going to be living forever in heaven. Uh, if you're not in Christ, by the way, you too will be resurrected and given a body that will last forever in hell. Uh, for those of us who are in faith in Christ, our body is resurrected and made perfect as Christ is perfect, given the opportunity to live with him forever. And so he's also coming, up, coming back and he's establishing this kingdom today in a spiritual sense, but he's coming again and he will establish it physically as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 helps us to really get the truth in that. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he's telling them about communion, much like what we're about to experience together. And he wants them to have the truths of the communion. He says, hey, this is what I received from the Lord. This is what he told me. Uh, that, and, he, and Paul says, I deliver this to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So today, when we're taking communion, we're looking back to the treasure of the gospel that is demonstrated in Christ, and we're looking forward to the promise of the completion of the gospel when he comes again. 
So it's a looking back and it's a considering the present, what difference this is making in our life. And we're looking forward to the future when the Lord Jesus comes again. Hey, as the Old Testament prophets promised that Jesus would come in the first advent, and he did, so Christ in the New Testament words of prophets are that he would come again, and he will come again in the second advent. It's the glorious truth of God's word to us. And as you take communion, it's to remind you of that. It reminds us that we have also been united with Christ, both in his suffering and in his comfort. You can tell that there's a real disengagement from those who are hearing the words of Jesus and its truth. So Jesus is saying, hey, we must go up to Jerusalem And while there, the Son of Man is going to be turned over to the hands of people who are going to brutally, savagely beat him, mock him, crucify him. Now, almost immediately, as Matthew records it, Salome comes up to Jesus. And she says to him, I want my sons, James and John, to be at your right and to your left. So we're recognizing that there's a disconnect. If you're a leader of a kingdom and you tell you the people who are following you, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed there in a horrendous way. Nobody volunteers, I'll go with you. So they didn't get it. They're, they're thinking the kingdom of God is like the kingdoms of the world and it's going to be established here on earth and there's going to need to be rulers. And the rulers in the practice of the first century were to the right and to the left of the, the main leader. The closest thing you and I could come to that is we would go to the president of the United States and we'd say, hey, I want to be the vice president and she wants to be the uh, chief of staff. You can't get closer than the president than those two positions. So Salome comes up to Jesus. She kneels before him and she says, I'm going to ask you something. Will you do it for me? What is it you want? I want my sons, James and John, to be at your right and your left. Now, this is coming from a position, not just as a follower of Christ. This is coming from a relational position. She is his aunt. She is the sister to Mary. James and John are not just disciples. They are first cousins. They know each other very well. And in some way, you kind of wonder if the disciples who are around, who get indignant to this question, are wondering, why is it that you get the favored position? Is it because you're related to him? We've given our life to him, too. But at any rate, they don't understand what Christ is doing. What Christ is doing is not establishing a physical uh, kingdom here on earth yet. He's establishing a a spiritual kingdom. And it will one day be physical, but it must be spiritual today. And he's inviting people into it. Come into the spiritual kingdom of God. Come to the new life that is afforded to you spiritually in Christ. And so he says to come. Now, Salome is asking, can, can they be your right and your left? Uh, I'm not sure you understand what you're asking. And you can see him turning to James and John saying, can you drink of the cup that I drink? And they say, yeah, we can do that. We are able And Jesus helps them to understand, you will drink of that cup, but it won't be like you're thinking. In fact, the cup of Christ is a cup of suffering. And James and John are going to endure the suffering because they're followers of Christ and do drink of the cup of Christ. James, as you probably know, was the first of the apostles to be martyred and the only one given the specifics of his death in the scripture of the apostles. He was killed by the sword of Herod, which for most Bible scholars believe that to mean that he was decapitated by Herod. John, his brother, outlived all the others, 
but he died as an old man exiled from his homeland on an island called Patmos. So both of them drank of the cup of Christ with great suffering, but that suffering is only temporary. The reward of enduring all the way through the end is that they are rewarded for all eternity. In fact, are given the opportunity to, to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus had already told them that in eternity. All right, so what about for you and me? As you hold the cup today and you drink the cup, it is a remembrance of what Christ has done, but it's also a reminder that Christ is calling you and me to drink the cup, the cup of suffering. You say, well, how am I going to suffer today? You'll suffer in varying ways. Listen, if you're going to engage in the spiritual kingdom of Jesus, you're going to have to engage with an open-handed life. You're not going to be able to cling to the things of the world. You're going to let go of those things. And I can tell you that is going to bring suffering. When other people are not generous in giving as you are, your life will not compare to theirs. Jesus is calling for us to live in that open-handed way, and it will change as you live, how you live. It's a part of suffering. Some of you are moving towards the harvest offering, and you're praying and seeking how God might want you to live open-handedly towards that. I can tell you that is going to be life-changing for you. It's lifestyle-changing when you live in a generous way to give in the kingdom work that God has allowed us to be part of. So you're in that mindset of not just how can I give and not be affected by it, but Lord, I'm willing to drink the cup. I'm willing to suffer in order to be able to have the generous blessings that you will give in response. Suffering rejection from those who are rejectors of God and his word. Listen, if you're one who holds true to God and his word, you are going to be rejected. You're going to suffer rejection. Because Jesus said, if they do that to the master, how much more will they do it to you? You're a follower of him. They will, they will follow suit with your suffering as well. And listen, you're going to suffer relationally. There are going to be people in your life who will not want to engage you relationally because you have the spirit of holiness in you. And they're not comfortable around the spirit of holiness. They're living life differently. And they will sever the relationship and you will suffer that. It could be in your business, in your job, in your neighbors. It could be your family. It could even be the closest people to you that say, up no more. The Lord even warned us about that. It could be that a husband or a wife who is saved, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in, that the unsaved may say, I want nothing to do with you. Suffering. It's part of our life. There are many, many experiences of suffering that we endure, and the people all over the world are enduring. John Stott noted that the single secret of evangelistic or ministry effectiveness is this notion of suffering, being willing to suffer. It's not about having a strategy, a plan, a program. It's about being willing to suffer. And if you and I are willing to suffer, to suffer, to endure to the end, then that is the secret to really having a great ministry and to see God's kingdom do exponential things in your midst. He says that it might be the death of popularity or pride or it might be prejudice being identified with another culture and them coming against you, or it might even be material comfort that you give up, simply adopting a lifestyle of simplicity, you will suffer. 
Now, as we following these, follow the suffering servant, it's the way of Christ as his following. He is the suffering servant. So it's, it's that way. We're called to live a life of dying to this world and living a life of grace in the kingdom, and that is going to put us at odds. So when we hold the cup in just a moment, it's a cup of remembrance, but it's also a cup of pledging our life to him and our purpose and our intentionality to him. But be, be encouraged that the Lord says not only will you endure suffering, he will be with you in the midst of the suffering. He's not just a high priest who is distant from you, but he knows your suffering. And there is coming a day that there will be no more suffering. There is coming a day that there will be only comfort that is given to you. I'm reminded that there is coming a day that there will be no more tears. They will be wiped away. No more suffering. And that day we rejoice and we're glad. So we endure knowing that that day's coming. Then finally, communion reminds us to live Christ-like with unity and humility and with service. As you take communion, you are seeing the essence of those things. To be Christ-like is to choose to live under the submission and the transformation of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you don't do that on your own terms. You, you come to him and you say, oh, Holy Spirit of the living God, work in me in transformation. Just about every morning, Kay and I will get up and we'll be engaged in God's word together. And we pray together at the end of that. And we pray prayers like, God, let this word shape us today. Let what we've read be alive in us. Uh, sometimes we might miss the morning, like typically on Sunday mornings, we don't read God's word together. We do it in the evening. And even in that prayer, we will pray, Lord, let this word be evident in us, that your spirit is working in us. We submit ourselves to your spirit's work. So to be Christ-like is to be given to the, to the spirit who is transforming us. And as he transforms us, he will make us more unified and certainly more loving and humble and more in servitude to one another. Let's think about unity. Unity is loving other people more than we love us. The unity was fractured when James and John and Salome seemed to be sort of vying for position. Uh, they didn't demonstrate the love that they have for other people when they're wanting the number one, number two spots. So when you're vying for position in the kingdom of God, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to be loving to people because you've got the love set from your own heart for you. But when you start positioning and lifting others, it really signifies the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we love others more than we love us. And in the midst of that, we have the Holy Spirit helping us with humility that we would raise others and, and move life for others in an elevated position, and we humble ourselves and we elevate others. What God says in the midst of that is that He will elevate us. He will exalt those who are humble. He will do that on our behalf. But then also this notion of servitude, this, this idea of becoming a slave uh, in the kingdom, that sounds so bizarre that a king would be calling his followers to be slaves, and all the people who are his followers would say, yeah, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. I want to be a slave. But Christ does things radically different in his kingdom, and they are perfect. Uh, we, we would never believe that a servant's place would be the exalted place in any kingdom, but that's what Jesus does. 
The term in, in this section is, is pretty amazing. It's a doulos. It, it's the lowest standard of position that's available. Uh, I don't want to give some title to that in our culture because I don't want somebody to think that I'm thinking less of them. I'm not. But if you think of the most menial tasks that require no training and no skill, that's doulos. Uh, Randy, I want you to take this and go put it over there. That doesn't take a lot of training, a lot of skill. That would be a doulos, a servant, to do that. Or I want you to take this food and go serve it to those people, and if they have any need whatsoever, you meet their need by serving them. That's doulos. So you and I would say, well, hey, in the rankings of the kingdom, that doesn't rank very high. But in Jesus' kingdom, that ranks the highest. To be a servant is the highest. Jesus himself, who is God in the flesh, did not come to be served, but to serve. And he did so by laying his life down as a ransom for many. So our life is given to this place of service where we're seeking to give in a way that others might be exalted and others might be served. D.L. Moody states it well when he says, the measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how many people he serves. So over the last few days, could you identify somebody that you purposefully served? What about this morning? Have you gone out of your way to serve someone? I'm just going to say that if you and I live in the pace of this world, you and I will not serve other people. We will expect to be served. In fact, I have a friend that owns a restaurant who does not open on Sundays any longer. And when I asked him about that, he said, well, number one, I needed one day that I could rest. And number two, church people are the worst when they come to the restaurant. Because we have this idea, we bought into this idea that we are to be served. Why don't we turn that around? How about if we figure out a way that we can serve the servants? Love on them. Encourage them. Maybe offer something to them. To serve is the greatest. If you want to be in the kingdom of God and you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, then you're going to have to let the Holy Spirit condition your heart to serve others in the kingdom and beyond. As I was just really focused on this notion of service, I was seeking after some great uh, truths that others had discovered. And I came across a quote from Martin Luther King. And I read the quote and I thought, man, that's, that's fantastic. There's, there's so much truth to that. And it elevates the, the, uh, the teaching of Christ for a, a modern day generation. And then I heard him Preach that message uh, on an audio file on YouTube. I'm like, well, I can't just read this quote. I need Martin Luther King to preach this quote. So listen to the words of Martin Luther King as he takes these ideas of servitude and lifts them to their exalted place. If you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. But recognize that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. That's a new definition of greatness. This morning, the thing that I like about it, 
By giving that definition of greatness, it means that everybody can be great. Because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't know, you don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics in physics to serve. You only need a heart full of grace. generated by love you can be that servant a heart full of grace a soul generated by love that's the reason why Jesus was taking his disciples to Jerusalem to demonstrate to be and to give God's grace to us to generate hearts that are new, not made better, but made new.